Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we're talking about Bruno, <laughs> one of the main characters in Encanto, the 2021 film directed by Jared Bush and Byron Howard, co-directed by Cherise Castro-Smith, screenplay by Cherise Castro-Smith and Jared Bush. I'm joined by the Bond Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetas. Hi. Okay, so Encanto. We haven't talked about an animated movie for a little bit, and there's been quite a lot of hype and buzz around this. Uh, as I mentioned in our previous episode, some close friends have been yelling at me for a long time to watch this movie, and people keep saying, we don't talk about Bruno, and I don't know why. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, let's. I'm excited to finally watch this and understand what is going on with this movie. Uh, and it is lovely and great and very well done, has a really uh, solid screenplay and the morals and themes are feel just very like modern and good. And yes, like I'm so happy this kind of movie exists. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there was a little bit of that. Uh, like a minor bit of resistance because of all the hype and because of the like, it's the best thing ever. And like, you're gonna love the music and everything's gonna be great. And I was like, okay, but like, is this the best thing ever yet? I'm waiting. Um, but pretty immediately, I was swept up in it and the characters and the arc and the animation is just mm. yeah gorgeous like yeah. gotten so good like yeah. my god like there's been great animation for forever but for some reason like this movie i was like it added it elevated what was already great to an insane level uh and the hair the hair texture yeah was so good it was like the, the best sand. hair i've ever seen yeah, yeah. Mm. sand in the hair um <laughs> if michael likes only sand, time you know, wow exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh anyway so yeah uh i really enjoyed myself and uh it was fun yeah rewatching parts and going and watching some of the kind of like behind the scenes making of stuff that they have on disney plus and learning more about it uh, and it, yeah, just such a, a wonderful film that I'm glad exists. Yeah. Thumb, thumbs up from Michael. Uh, yeah. I'm curious to hear your guys. Brian, why don't we start with you? What was your uh, take on Encanto? Yeah, I was also a little resistant and actually for a different reason, which was just the few people that I know who saw it were like, yeah, it was fine. Like, just like it was another one of these, you know, um, and I'm fine with these you know, by these i mean the sort of you know the yearly um pixar or disney animated movies that we you know that we're getting right now all of which are you know tend to look gorgeous i just watched coco for the first time recently on you know that and this on just like 4k tv just all the color you know outstanding um and uh but then yeah when i when i watched this it had that sort of um that thing that you want as an adult watching this kind of movie, especially when you don't have kids, right? You're just watching it with your adult partner uh, and being like, well, we're watching this movie. And then you're like, oh, no, I don't feel alienated, right? Like, I don't feel like this movie is for a different audience than 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 me. Uh, and I'll get to some of that later. But um, but it's that sort of thing of one, just feeling like the animation is going the extra mile and the songs are really good, but also feeling like the writing is really smart and it's not talking down to you. Um, 
and and like really feeling like, oh, no, I'm genuinely laughing at this. I'm not laughing because it's like a funny joke for kids. Um, and uh, and yeah, just had a had a really lovely time with it. And uh, it was also I was surprised how quick it was over. Um, I think there was this like, again, the, this like Disney brain was going, well, now they have like there's a the evil wolf spirit that was in the house that they have to battle for <laughs> right. 25 minutes you know um and it was just like no like the they've healed their issues and the house is back and that's it the movie's over and i thought i mean it took me by surprise but not in a bad way just just it felt like such an abrupt ending but also what a great thing to be able to uh, to provide to younger audiences right now is a movie where this feels like the arc of just a family drama that made for adults, basically, you know, like a, like a sort of, we, you know, we lost our child and we have to, you know, repair him finally at the end where uh, we feel okay now, like that kind of very Oscar-y movie or something. Those are the kind of movies that have that arc where it's just like a like the big finale is just things are okay now. Um, and it was just lovely to see a movie like this where the big finale was just just a family repaired and a house repaired, literally. Um, and for that to just be enough to give you and hopefully kids the emotional payoff that that a, a movie should be able to have without having to be have some big giant set piece at the end. Yeah. There's no like, and now we need to go stab the bad guy so that we win. <laughs> right, like, exactly. There's, yeah, right. there's none of that. Uh, Heal the family through violence yeah. <laughs> and, right. mur and murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about other movies right now, but that, it'll be spoilers, so I won't. Um, Alex. Well, <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, Alex, what, what was your take? <clears throat> Yeah, a, a similar theme here where it wasn't so much I was skeptical because it was an animated movie or a Disney movie. It was because it wasn't a Pixar movie. And I have like a Pixar bias mm. where, you know, last year's soul was just like my movie. And it was Pete Doctor was just speaking to me. And it was about jazz, like adult things. You know, it wasn't even for kids almost. The cat was for kids, but everything else was for me as an adult. <laughs> and so when this movie began and it and it presents itself as more of a traditional like Disney kids movie where people do break out into a musical number, kind of like the old days. Like it felt I, I haven't been keeping up with these non Pixar Disney movies, like the frozen movies that I know are, you know, have these hit singles that people are obsessed with. I've been out of that scene. So I don't know what's going on over there. And, and I, and so I haven't been seeing animated movies that have just, we're going to sing for a while now. And it's going to be about my inner feelings and about my character and we're just going to do that and so when when this movie was presenting itself as that which is something that i grew up with you know in the kind of golden era of disney mm -hmm. it, it was feeling like okay yeah so i'm like this it, this looks like a gorgeous state-of-the-art pixar movie and yet the form is hearkening back to kind of like my 90s childhood days of this this really just earnest classical musical format um and so at first I was a little bit like, ah, like, is this just for kids then? Like, it's not really for me. It's a, it's going to be just a bunch of people singing about their feelings. But as the movie went on, uh, I was saying before we got on the podcast, it was like I started off in this kind of resistant, you're not Pixar mode, all the way to like, I was definitely choking back tears, mm -hmm. like throughout like the last like third of the movie. And I was like, why am I feeling so emotional? This is like 
a kid's movie. This has like been classified <laughs> in my mind as like a lesser Disney type of movie. But no, like it was like it was getting me as misty as the best Pixar movies. So it, it, it was good for me to kind of like wash away my bias and realize, oh, no, like there's just as much depth and emotion and richness here in this kind of more classical Disney form and and just as much uh, cleverness and and really great character design and really great you know story design. So yeah, this movie won me over and I was skeptical that Disney without Pixar couldn't couldn't do it for me and they did it for me. So yeah, I am also a fan. Nice. nice. Yeah, no, there's definitely like this, this weird blend of like classic and also hyper modern that's just like super right. working for me this, mm. this whole time mm. i want to talk about more um but yeah trisha yeah um so i mentioned this on the podcast as a what am i watching and i also mentioned it in the same breath with as missile mitchell's versus machines um which is also about you know a teenage girl who like is trying to you know, connect with her family kind of thing. And actually I recently also watched Disney's turning red, mm. um, which is also on your Disney plus and is also kind of about this exact same thing, which is about, you know, she's a, a girl going into adolescence in that movie. And, but she's got like family, like generational sort of issues and like expectations about her life. And, um, you know, it's about this you know young woman who lives in Toronto and like, uh, anyway, she's, it's a long story, but she turns into a red panda and um, <laughs> and then like her mother like reveals that they all the women in their family turn into red pandas when they like, you know, become adolescents. And um, oh, it's Teen Wolf. A, a bit. <laughs> OK, uh, I'm in. Uh, but anyway, but it, it's it, that is also sort of about like, how do you confront you know, trauma that you've inherited sometimes, or just the weight of your family's legacy on your shoulders. Um, and it's interesting that a, a lot of these films, all three of the ones that I just mentioned kind of have, you know, arcs for the central relationship is like a daughter and a parent or a grandparent, um, or sometimes both in the case of turning red. Um, she has to reconnect with her mother and her grandmother in that movie. And, um, you know, this is not new material necessarily. Like, you know, I think Mulan, uh, which was sort of the, one of the last of the Disney Renaissance movies it is, is trading in this, uh, sort of thematically. But I think that where this movie succeeds is that it has this, um, incredible, scope to it where it's really hyper focused on the family as you guys are pointing out there's not a villain right and the mm -hmm. stakes never get bigger than like our house is breaking mm -hmm. <laughs> like um right. and, and like our, the magical gifts that we have are are potentially fading but the movie never cares to you know like if louisa can't lift things anymore then the world will end right like right. the movie never you know bumps out the stakes and out and out and out because it isn't about that and also this is a period movie like it's set in 1912 i think they said ish or like right around the turn of the century almost but you'd never know that like it's just kind of in this time out of place right like it's in a village and people aren't speaking in any particular sort of you know english of a, of a time yeah, <laughs> yeah right. exactly um, and so I think that there's just a really fascinating thing happening with this movie. Um, whereas the other ones that I mentioned, all, um, all of them are 
very much also like about the time, about the place. They're about some kind mm. of apocalypse. They're about some kind of like the city's under attack or like, yeah, there's a robot apocalypse or like there's, you know, China's being invaded by the Huns. Like, <laughs> and, and this is just like the candle might go out and right. I feel disconnected from my family and I feel like I've disappointed them. And those are literally the entire stakes. For some reason, I, I find this so much more accessible and then, then I don't want to say more accessible necessarily, but I do think it hits in a certain place a little bit differently where it's so easy to imagine yourself in this situation, magical in this situation, magical powers aside, right? Where we all know what it's like to have a parent or a grandparent or whoever that has, we feel is disappointed in us and who we are. Um, and so I, I think that, I just think that that's so, so beautiful, um, thematically. And we can get into all of that more. And the animation and the songs, I think the songs are a huge part of the reason mm -hmm. why this movie stands out from the pack. Um, they are so catchy. Like, <sighs> I wish I could describe to you the number of days between when I first saw this movie and now that I've had nothing but these songs rattling around <laughs> in my brain. It is so exhausting. Like, but in a way that you just have to respect and admire, like the family Madrigal is like, whew, that one <laughs> in particular just gets worms its way into your brain. And it's something about Lin-Manuel Miranda's lyrics too. He's say, such he's... a lyricist that it's the lyrics that are just like, it's time for a grandkid roundup. And like I mean, all, <laughs> all of those like things, they just get into your brain. Uh, even the title, we don't talk about Bruno as a phrase is like, catchy and fascinating right and piques your interest and things like that so um anyway i just yeah this movie is this movie works and like wins on so many levels and i hope we get more that are like this from disney you know disney animation so yeah i agree but i also think lin-manuel has to be stopped <laughs> tick tick boom in the heights Encanto, vivo and one other one what am i missing um, Hamilton. I mean, Ham oh, no, no. This year. <laughs> oh, okay. This he, year. Yeah. yeah oh, wow, he did. Wow, he did wow. like took a nap. five movies or something, or yeah. like was somehow responsible. Involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very impressive. Uh, yeah. Well, and so it, it was interesting. So as the movie started off, I was thinking about the, the the kind of the opening, you know, prologue explanation of like what happened is like a little dark, like, you know, yeah. being chased down by men on horses. Like that's all it's very scary. But then it goes hard into like and then magic, like just what if like, no, literally this is magic. This isn't like, you know, a symbolic representation of what was actually physically happening, like this is a magical place that was an interesting choice for me but it came early enough that it it didn't like throw me off and then the way that they used all these magic abilities to characterize all the characters and their internal struggles mm -hmm. it, it was just like it's such a so clever the way it was done to make everything emotional but also make it very clear the the things that the each character, you know, I have to be this way or that way to Im impress somebody. But also you can clearly see how too much of this would, you know, causes a problem. And I think that is another, you know, the three dimensionality of every character was done very efficiently where you understand this is their superpower. But like this is also the too much of a good thing that's that's causing the problem and keeping them like it's almost, you know, 
the the thing that's trapping them and preventing them from being their true self. And so I think all of that ended up being just rendered literally in a very beautiful way. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was another one of the arcs that I went on of like, wait, we're doing literal magic here? I don't know, to like, this is wonderful. I want to stay in this world for forever. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking as, as this movie began, you know, that opening sequence, it reminded me of other Disney movies or Pixar movies where the what if is like kind of a stretch and it's and it's also specific and complicated in a way that it was like a balancing act to to like explain quickly and get you on board with it's like don't question it like this candle turned magic and this candle made a house and the house is like a beauty and the beast house and it like is a, has a personality and can move around also the house has doors and the doors present themselves to the children when they turn a certain age and they touch the door and they get a special superpower of some kind. And that is like what that's, that's what the world is of this movie. And, and it's, it's such a specific what if that then it reveals itself to be all for a reason, all for good story and character reasons. But it, it is like, it was like a bumpy ride going in. Cause I'm like, this is what if have to be this complicated? Like mm -hmm. are, do all these rules come out of the same like kernel or are they just like random things that they're just throwing against the wall? Like, yeah, a candle and a house and the doors and the powers. Um, but by the end of the movie, it was like, like you're saying, Michael, it feels like it's all, it is all there to, to be this magical realism representation of solid family dynamics and solid thematic and character things. You know, even like the home cracking and breaking is like a literal broken home. Yeah, so every, all of the magic is representational, even though in the world of the movie, it is literal. Um, and that's where, I, that's when I appreciated that it was just like, okay, this is weirdly specific and complex magical setup but all of it is for a reason. It's not just random rules for rules sake. It's thematic and symbolic. Um, but but it, it's, it's impressive and difficult to set up these kinds of worlds in a movie because they are so kind of strangely specific and have rules that are that could just fly off the handle if you don't handle them well. Yeah, I think one thing that helps, I and mean, we actually talked about this a little in Scott Pilgrim, which is you can kind of have a nonsense world with nonsense rules when it doesn't actually interact with what we would consider the real world, you know, like, so mm. in toy story, there are humans. So you do have to kind of do a balancing act where you're like, here are the toys, here's what they can do. But also a human is going to walk into the room and the toys have to be still and, you know, they might get thrown out and whatever. And like they, if a toy is on a truck, that that truck is going, they can't just, teleport home you know we have to go get them um but in a movie like this there is the the village you know that they live in but for the most part it's not oh here's a magical family running around new york right and like what, <laughs> right. what does that mean yeah. and like this power this power it's no no this entire world this entire story world is just magical family so you can get away with saying there's this power there's this power and this power because you don't have to then follow through with what those rules mean in the bigger picture, right? Right. Um, and I love the way that it is uh, revealed, which is, you know, her, uh, um, Mirabelle singing to the kids and saying like, oh, this, because you, you, especially if you don't know anything about this movie, you are kind of going, 
like, oh, is this, does she mean literal magic? Like you were saying, Michael. And then, uh, and then it's like, oh, these, these like funny kind of cartoony powers they have. So it's like, oh, we're having a good time here. And then we build up to, you know, what's your power? What's your power? What's your power? Oh, she didn't get one. Lala. Um, and then, but the cool thing is we, we, we open with her as a child, but we don't actually see her ceremony until it is, um, you know, placed up against uh, her her cousins. And then mm -hmm. we're seeing him get his like wonderful animal, you know, Ace Ventura power. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then and then we're seeing that cross cut with with her um, you know, her not getting hers and then her, you know, waiting on a miracle song and everything. So it's like it helps kind of keep that all grounded because we 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 build into it and then when we do get the most magical in the first act, we then are cutting to Mirabelle being like, but not me. And then her just kind of like singing her song to herself while everyone else is in slow motion, in that beautiful sequence. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it does, it does a lot of work to make it not feel like you're just seeing 12 different rules just in a mishmash for no reason. This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by Curiosity Stream and Nebula. Curiosity Stream is the best place to find thousands of great documentaries on all kinds of subjects. For example, right now they're doing an eight-week special event called Secrets of the Universe. A recent episode is on Skylab, NASA's first space station. Before the International Space Station, Skylab was humanity's first home beyond our planet. This episode is all about the first astronauts to live on a space station and what their work taught us about what it takes for human beings to live, work, and play in outer space. An annual plan for CuriosityStream is less than $15 a year when you sign up at our link, curiositystream.com screenplay. But it gets even better. When you sign up at that link, you also get complimentary access to Nebula. Nebula is a subscription streaming service where you can support your favorite creators while getting access to a bunch of exclusive content. It was created by and features a bunch of educational-ish YouTubers, many of whom you probably know. Maggie Mae Fish, Just Right, Like Stories of Old, Game Maker's Toolkit, Nando V Movies, and many more. It's a place where we can create experimental content without having to please the YouTube algorithm gods. There are no sponsor spots, and you can get extended cuts of public videos as well as original companion videos and series. It's a great way to support your favorite creators, and as I mentioned, when you sign up for CuriosityStream, you get access to Nebula as well. So head to curiositystream.com slash screenplay to get access to Nebula and CuriosityStream for less than $15 a year. The link is in the show notes or on screen right now if you're watching on YouTube. Thanks to CuriosityStream for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about The Incredibles as I was watching this mm -hmm. because that's also about a family who all have different powers, right? And the thing about w magical powers when you're kind of picking them, right? And I feel like this is one of these questions you get asked in like middle school, right? Like if you could have any superpower, what would you pick? And everyone's like, I would fly, obviously. Um, but like when you're picking, oh, Michael's face says, no, he would not fly. That's obvious to me. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's a little conspicuous. I think it makes you a target. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, it, but go ahead. a good point. I'm, we're not being strategic, Trisha. Yeah, all right. Well, circle back. Well, you guys think about this question. We'll come back to it. But um <laughs> But it's kind of one of those questions. And when you're picking superpowers for characters in this kind of like magical world, they need to be like specific and like bounded enough. Right. And so 
Like you have Dolores, for example, who can hear anything that's happening in the village, but it's not like she can hear military secrets being shared in Washington, D.C. You know what I'm saying? Um, And you have Louisa who can move a church and maybe reroute a river, but she's not Superman, right? She probably can't like turn the earth the other direction kind of thing. So they have to, they have to be like grounded in terms of like scale and that also keeps us from wondering too much about what this family does with their powers because we can't really tell and it doesn't seem to be much. Like, you know, you have um, Mirabelle's mother who is like healing people in the village, presumably with her cooking from like minor ailments. Can she bring someone back from the dead? I doubt it. Like how how wounded can they be? And like her cooking would <laughs> yeah. fix them. Again, the movie doesn't want us to wonder about that stuff. And so what they show us has to be narrow. It has to be like, my dad gets bee stings, my mom gives him an arepa, and then he's fine. You know, and like, it has to just be very kind of narrow in that way. Um, same thing with like Dolores's powers. Like, um, what's his name that shape shifts? Uh, he like doesn't, he literally seems to do nothing whatsoever with his power. Mm-hmm. Like than- helps the guy hang up a banner one time. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Matching yeah. his height. That, that's like the one helpful thing I noticed. Yeah. Well, actually that's, that's a great call, Alex, because again, the powers are being played for character reasons. And, you know, as the characters for like bigger characters, like Luisa and Isabella, But then as the characters are like sort of more and more tertiary, like her aunt, right, who controls the weather, Mm -hmm. like that's more of just like a comedic power over there. So like, does she actually cause storms and seasons? Like, can she help the crops grow in the village? The movie doesn't want us to wonder about that. So it doesn't show us anything about that. And I think that that's super smart because it just kind of focuses on this is not a family that's here to fight crime. This is not a family that's here to do anything other than like kind of help out their neighbors. It's kind of all they're here to do. And But that's not what the conflict of the movie is, right? The Incredibles are here to fight actual supervillains. And the central conflict is that the world doesn't want superheroes and yet they are superheroes. And then there's also internal conflict, but not caused by their powers in, in those films about the Incredibles. In this movie, all the conflict is internal. All of it is not about what your powers are necessarily. It's about, are you, you know, measuring up to some arbitrary standard that the abuela has for you? Um, and so I think that that's just, I just think it's, a. I don't know how they pulled it off, to be honest. <laughs> like, I don't know how I, I don't know how nobody spends the first half of this movie wondering about like, well, what are they going to do now with all these powers? They're right. not going to do anything. <laughs> They're not going to do right, anything. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to sing some songs and that's it. That's not what the movie's about. And and I, how did you get this? How, also, the audience isn't wondering, how did you get it by Disney execs? You have 12 magical characters with 12 different <laughs> magical powers, and they're not doing anything with them. They're just, <laughs> and somehow that's your movie. It's it's brilliant, but it is a bold choice. They're saving it all for Encanto. Wow. No. Oh, they are making a show, though, by wow. the way. Or it hasn't been officially announced, but they're oh, definitely. Like the family magical. Plus. Yeah, probably. Yeah. About one of the other siblings i think or something because mm, you have to i yeah. guess so well yeah I, like i think you hit the nail on the head there where like the the conflict is not about any of that like at no point in this movie is there ever an instance where it's like oh 
there's going to be a time where you're really going to need to punch someone hard. So you better make sure that, you know, Louisa's around to like hit someone like all of the all of the obstacles, all of the conflict, everything in Mirabelle's yeah, journey is all uh, yeah, has nothing to do with like external like power. And so, th- yeah, it's just the movie is not concerned with that. And instead we get to see all those powers uh, and like delightful character defining ways or things that sort of show, you know, here's how the family like gets along and here's how these powers can come together. So we get to see like, like what the family is like at its best. And when everybody is like, you know, happy and together, but we also see the downside of both of those. And and I think that's, again, I, I kind of keep coming back to that, but that each character has this, like the positive side and the negative side of the gift that they've been given all the way up to the Abuela, who's like, yeah, who who is the antagonist, but also is someone that you completely empathize with and understand, and you you understand the desires she has of like, I want to protect this thing, I want to protect it so much that I'm, you know, potentially like killing it in a way, and so that the powers can exist while also doing all of that is also impressive. Well, because yeah, the powers aren't there for a final battle where you need each one of the powers like an avengers style yeah, yeah. you know this perfect combination of superpowers can defeat the enemy they really are there as just fun magical expressions of who these people are in this family like the roles they are expected to play you know so you've got you know the strong one who's who's just supposed to be there to kind of like be there for everybody help everybody out be the solid rock for the family louisa You've got um, Isabella, who is the golden child, who's just, you know, who's going to be the one, obviously, who's going to marry the hunk from town. Obviously, like, she will be the perfect person. Um, And so so all of the powers are really just kind of fun expressions of, like, roles that people fall into in families. And they're not there for fighting a bad guy or for even yeah, like your sanctuary not even really doing that much for the town <laughs> besides moving some donkeys maybe and putting some flowers around yeah, um but yeah they yeah they're, they're definitely seem to be like needed and loved by this the community but yeah they're not like saving the world with these powers and i think it's it's cool and that's why the movie as it went on it became more and more clear to me that that it wasn't a bunch of randomness it, it was using this conceit of magic as a way to express and externalize family roles. And that's really interesting. When you have a, when you have a movie with 12 people in it, 12 family members in it, that's a really neat device to very quickly, like make an archetype out of each of these characters and, and, and identifiable archetypes. And you, you got Bruno, who's kind of the, maybe like neurodivergent or like weird uncle who kind of is you know, ostracized from the family. Like we all like understand that, like that is a thing. And, and I, I, as the movie kind of wraps up, uh, it really all comes together for me. And I'm like, man, like this did the family thing like more clearly and better than I think most other like kind of family Disney movies have done where it's not just kind of like a singular, like mother, child father child relationship being repaired it's like an entire family network of family archetypes all having to kind of like deal with like yeah this is the role that i've been kind of put in by this family community and you know can i be more than that and be my full self and still be in this family and still all stay together um and so it's it's a really complex family web that i just haven't seen done before in this kind of a movie 
Well, and just returning to the that opening song, which is uh, the family Madrigal, like mm-hmm. it is an incredible feat that that movie does such a good job of introducing every single one of those characters in a way that is clear and followable. Um, even if it's not, even if it kind of blows by you the first time you watch it, watching it again and listening to the music again, the structure of that song is perfect, right? It starts with Abuela. It goes with two, the three triplets, right? And it's like, here's my aunt. Here's my mother. Here's Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. Um, and then it goes down into the next generation where they go into the grandkid roundup. Here are my two cousins. And then Antonio, who gets his gift today. And then here are my two sisters. And then that's all of us, basically. By the way, these guys married in. Don't worry about them. They don't have magical powers. Um, and it, and then it goes back through them all. In the end, there's like a I was going to say, it has like a reprise in the song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. It, well, again, to, to reinforce, like, again, once again, I will tell you all about them again. Here's Abuela again. Here's mm-hmm. my aunt. Here's my mother. And then here's all the cousins. Here's my siblings. And it's it does a really good job of being like, I'm going to get them quickly, like go through them quickly, but we're going to visually show you because this is animated and what, you know, the characters also have really distinctive looks and we've talked about that, but like here's, they have distinctive powers. They have distinctive looks. The song is structured to like take your hand and guide you through the family tree. And like it funnels you from Abuela out to the generate down through the generations. And then it funnels you back to Mirabelle. And like, as you're pointing out Brian earlier, it just hammers home. Like, and then you Mirabelle and then you Mirabelle and then you Mirabelle. What, what about you? Right. And that's what a great, you know, I do want to talk about like the songs that animated movies have and, and most, a lot of musicals, but especially like in the style of a Disney, like, especially like a Disney Renaissance musical. There are very, very specific musical numbers and you basically have to have one to one of these songs to put in each one of those boxes. And, you know, so this is like the opening, here's the world song. And if you want to think about Beauty and the Beast, which is a perfect Uh example, right? It's like... Here's a town. Bonjour, bonjour. And here's Belle. She's so unusual. Um, and it it gives you the world. It gives you the main character. And then, you know, Belle has that wonderful reprise that her, that's her This Is What I Want song, which is the one that's always come second. And this is a great example. Family Madrigal is a great example because it does give us the whole world. The whole world is this family. And this family is these 12 people. And it's a lot of people to keep straight. And But it works. Yeah, and I did find myself, as you were saying, the first time through going, okay, there's a ton of characters. Of course, I'm not going to remember any of them. That's fine. This the, this song is clearly not expecting me to. But then when it did the, the you know, one more time at the end of the song, I was like, oh, okay. Don't ask me to, like, name all of them or anything like that. But now I feel a, a slightly, you know, a bit more grounded and in place. I'm like, right, there's a weather person. Okay, there's a strong person. Like, it just did that little extra bit for me Then when uh, five minutes later in the movie, they reference one of them. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember you from the song because <laughs> because you told me twice that this person exists. Yeah. And throughout the movie, the powers are always with at them. play. So yes. like, you, you don't have long stretches where the characters are just walking around like normal people. And we forget who's who. It's like Ant who creates the weather is always creating weather. And, um, you know, kid who can shapeshift is always shapeshifting. There's not ever long stretches of time where we have to, like, remember them for their, like, names yeah. <laughs> or right. even their faces. It's like, I know you because you're, like, floating down here on flowers. Like, you are the flower girl. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even in that opening song, 
before the reprise, I think they say textually in it, like, I know this is a lot of people to like keep track of here. Yeah, right. Like we'll talk about like signaling to the audience that it's like, it's okay. And that was actually an important moment for me because I was definitely lost at that point. So that the movie was saying, it's okay to be a little confused. Like, don't worry. You, you haven't been thrown off. You're still on the ride. We got you. Um, is nice. And then, yeah. So like uh, Bruno is also just a really interesting character uh, I'm trying so hard to say, not say like, I, I want to talk about Bruno, um, but <laughs> I did and we have, you might as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like that he, you know, serves as like the midpoint reveal, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. is great. Uh, in the same way, you know, the alien chestburster is a great midpoint. Just like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. First thing I thought of yeah. when I met Bruno. I thought so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that he's also, you know, kind of like, a a clone character in a way of, of Carousel, right? Of mm. like, this is the disaster scenario. This is what she's like afraid of. This is the consequences of what happens when you don't like fit in. Like it's doing all of that. But again, somehow it's doing that where he doesn't feel like, you know, he's not bitter or up, like angry at the family. Like there's still like so much love there and that's another like fine line that this movie somehow manages to navigate where even Arabelle is like super like she loves her family. She wants she's to not be, bitter. Right. There's mm. no bitterness from anyone really toward anybody. A little bit of frustration, I guess, toward Bruno. Uh, but that like, yeah, you, you never feel. Uh, yeah, this kind of cynical it's too late. Like, I don't even want to be in this family. There's always like love happening there, which makes you always believe that there is room for reconciliation and that like secretly everyone does want the same thing. Well, I was paying close attention this time and it's the moment where she sees that he lives mostly behind the kitchen Mm -hmm. and that he has painted a plate for himself, Mm -hmm. like on his little seat and written his own name on it, right? Where so he can like pretend to himself that he's still having dinner with his family. And I think that's so key, right? Because the central conflict is not that when your family hurts you, you have to decide whether to leave or stay or care about what they think or not. The fam the the central conflict is what if you cared so much about your family and wanted so much to be with them and be a part of them, but felt like they couldn't accept you or you weren't good enough to be a part of them. Um, And those are different, like, that's a different theme, right? It's not that like, oh, you know, my family hurt me and now I don't care or whatever. It's, I really, really, really care. Um, And no, they, it's basically impossible for them to hurt me so much that I don't want to be with them. Um, And that's, you know, what happened in Bruno's case. And so like, despite everything, he still wishes desperately that he could be a part of his family. He just kind of acknowledges that he like, you know, it's almost a self-esteem problem where he thinks that he's, he's bringing them nothing but trouble. And so they're better off without him, but he still wishes he could be a part of them. Um, And I just think that that's really well observed and like a beautiful um, and very well expressed uh, 
nuanced theme about family. Um, I don't feel like we necessarily get that kind of theme very much. Um, that's so carefully handled, right? Um, and that's the thing, because, yeah, as you're pointing out, Michael, Mirabelle and Bruno are basically the same. They love their family an incredible amount. Um, and it's they worry that they don't measure up, not that their family is in so, in some way, like, toxic. It's not that the family is toxic, right? Even though there is some, like, damage there. It's that it's that for whatever reason, their gifts or their lack of gifts have make them feel alienated or like they're not good enough. When it's like it, there's a very specific kind of family story happening here, too, which is kind of an immigrant story or a generational trauma story where, you know, there's there's a reason why Abuela is so fearful of losing everything. It's because she did lose everything at some point in her life. She got back on her feet because of Magic Candle. But basically, you know, she represents a generation in a family that lost everything and built from scratch and, you know, has that fear in the back of their mind that everything could be lost again. The kids don't feel that because they've always been fine. And so it's, it's, it's really getting at that kind of story where it's about it's about that kind of generational trauma and that conflict versus like, like, mom and dad, you don't get me like I'm going to be independent and like, screw you. Like That's a different kind of like parent child conflict. This is about I have high expectations that are almost fear based for my descendants because I'm terrified we're going to lose it all again. And so instead of letting you be yourself or let you be who you are. I need you to be a certain role that will make me feel confident that, you know, this family will stay intact in the way that I understand is like safe. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think I really appreciate how, how focused this movie is on that particular kind of family conflict and not rebel punk kid versus right. parent kind right. of approach. Yeah. There's also kind of a reverse chosen one narrative here. Um, you know, mm. I talked about this with uh, Blade Runner 2049, actually, which is instead of being the special one, you find out that you're actually not the special one. And what does that mean? Uh, you are you are the, you know, um, the, the in Blade Runner 2049, he thinks he like maybe is not a replicant. Right. And that's spoilers, like whole, by the way. Whole, <laughs> yeah. It's not a spoiler that he thinks he's not a replicant. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, but but yeah, like what what he chooses to do with the information he gets, uh, you know, be, sort of makes him special. And I think we get a similar thing here with Mirabelle, which is that by not being the quote unquote special one, you know, that gives her a different perspective. And then she ultimately is the one who um, who is able to to help save save the house. She gets the door at the end. I was done. Mm -hmm. And was like, yeah, that one. That hit me. They give her the doorknob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they yeah. tell her they see her. Yeah. They see well, like, how brave she's been. Stop that's it. That's what this movie like made me upset. Because I'm like, I see what you're doing. It's so clear and it's so obvious and it's so in my face and it's so working. And I'm so <laughs> going to cry right now. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's. Yeah, a beautiful story about how not being the quote unquote special one can make you special or like, you know, just that there is there is nuance. That's why, yeah, I appreciate it from like a zooming out meta perspective of like there's the way we talk about specialness or celebrate specialness as, you know, cultures often leaves a lot on the floor and doesn't highlight things that are critically important to having happy 
a happy life and you know loving relationships and all these things and so that that this movie dramatizes that in a way that is like really fun is keep saying impressive because it is mm. really impressive and I, I also feel like the i wanted to just quickly mention the mom character is an interesting link in mm. this generational chain because she doesn't do a ton in the movie but i think what she does do helps a lot where like her mom and mirabelle's mom and, and dad are both like you don't need to be anything for us like we still like love you unconditionally and that they exist in this kind of in-between space between the generations i think is another reason why there's it feels like there's hope and that like mirabelle's only choice isn't well i gotta go run away from home and dye my hair and be a punk and destroy it like there's still yeah it's that there's still love and understanding but it's just the circumstances are also uh are what they are and as you pointed out alex are serious and aren't you know the the fear that is driving it as very real fear. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, that intractable, very hard problem, which is why it's so compelling to, to see them struggle with it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and I think that the design of Mirabelle is also why the themes here feel so resonant and and relatable and beautiful, which is just that, you know, from the very early scene where we see that she finds Antonio under the bed, right? And he's mm-hmm. like kind of scared and, you know, he is just feels like he's not ready, right? He's apprehensive and... Like we, they've been roommates, right? They're cousins, and he's been living in this room because I guess you have to live in this room until you <laughs> you have to live with Mirabelle. I guess you don't get a magic you room that's oh, like right. infinite space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you have to you have to live in this boring normal room where Mirabelle will have to live forever. I guess, <laughs> like, so anyway, um, but that scene does a lot of important character work where we see how much she cares about him. Right? She made him this cute little stuffed animal and like that really adorable moment where she gives him a hug and then like grabs him again. She's like, Oh, I got to get an extra squeeze and I'm going to miss having the world's best roomie. Like immediately I was like, Mirabelle, your power is empathy. Which is, which is an ordinary human trait, right? Like a, a lot of people have empathy, but some people have extraordinary empathy and that is Mirabelle's power. And we see her power at work on Louisa and we see her power at work on Isabella. And it's, it really reminded me um, of It's a Wonderful Life mm. where I feel like. Michael, that's a, that's a Christmas film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which has a really touching ending that I'm going to spoil for you since you haven't seen it. At some point, a basketball floor opens and people fall into a pool. Um, yep. He didn't get past that, that part, ending? apparently. That's the earlier thing. Okay. That's the part everybody talks about and remembers, for sure. Yeah, yeah the high school dance. It's a Wonderful Life is a movie about uh, <laughs> George Bailey, who wants to be extraordinary and wants to live an extraordinary life. He wants to go travel the world. He wants to go, um, you know, 
have adventures and and be like notable maybe and get out of this crummy town and and that's a very american ambition right like be notable live a, a life of adventure and do something um that people will tell a story about that's worthwhile and what george bailey discovers in that movie is that his very ordinary gifts and the very ordinary choices that he makes turn out to be the things that make him special and like the fact that he stays in his community and invests in his own community and gives up a lot of his dreams and, and sacrifices a lot of what he thought he wanted is in fact like what makes his life rich and worth living. And first of all, that was an extraordinary theme and message mm. uh, at that time in American history. Um, but I feel like that's a very similar message here, right? Mirabelle wishes to be special. She's waiting on a miracle. She keeps it, you know, that beautiful, her, this is what I want song, right? It's like, I'm ready. Like I, you know, I've, I've been patient. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And, but like, I'm supposed to be special now. Um, and what she discovers is that her very ordinary gift is still a real gift and a real power. Um, and has a, a very intense and, in fact, is the impact, is what's needed um, for her family and for her community. And very similar to It's a Wonderful Life, her community shows up for her at the end of this movie um, because of how, you know, to support her and her family because of the way that they have used their gifts. And not necessarily because of their specialness. It's because of the way that they've invested in their community, their ordinariness, right? Just their presence in the community um, and the simple ways that they have helped. And so I think that that's... I don't know. Again, it, it's just so it just doesn't feel American in so many ways, but I guess it's not. Mm -hmm. it, it's Colombian in this case. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's it's such an, uh, a refreshing message to hear from a movie like this is that you you don't have to be the actual princess or you don't actually have to get a gift at the end. Right. Like I kept expecting, I was like, please don't give Mirabelle a gift at the end. And they don't. Right. right? She has a gift. Um, mm. Her gift is just being who she is thinking about those early scenes like her her save the cat scene you know you might call it when she gives her cousin the present and is so sweet to him part of what this whole movie feels like in disney has figured out how to do humans like in mm. cartoon form mm -hmm. really well i mean there was a period in early you know computer animation where we were in uncanny uncanny valley territory where it's a little bit creepy like even in like the first toy story movie it's a little weird you oh know, yeah people it doesn't feel like good and whatever encanto is doing is like just perfect where they're so cartoon that there's no uncanny valley happening but there's an essence of just like very recognizable faces and very clear emotions and the big eyes are just like so emotive um yeah it, 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 they've they've cracked it and so so when you see these characters on screen with each other like the emotion comes through so mm. palpably that every single scene feels like there's like cheat codes added on top because of these like perfectly constructed faces and characters that are just emoting like with every pixel, you know, and, and it, it feels like it does transcend what even, you know, live action can do because yeah. there's just, it, it's just being architected to like inch of its life to just communicate pure emotion as strongly as possible through, you know, the set, through the music, through the faces, through their movements, everything. Um, and that's, that's part of what makes movies like this feel so magical is just, it's everything is, targeted at your 
heart, you know, like every inch of the screen um, in a way that you just could never do in a live action setting. Yeah, it's a really good point. You get the best of both worlds because you can you get that like crazy wide eyed look that someone has, you know, where the, you look at them and they're caught red handed and they just like so cartoony, right, that you could never you could do in live action, but it just wouldn't pay off the same way. But now we can, as you're saying, Alex, we can do that. Like you see a character look down and their smile fades a little bit, right? Those very like human emotions that you could. And I mean, don't get me wrong. You could do this in Aladdin. You could do this in in Snow White and stuff. Um, but we're able to do it in a way that feels just even more uh, sort of immersive and tangible now. There's no like work on your part required. I, mean, right. I think there's like some forms of animation we're watching it and it's like I'm almost participating and helping to construct like the full picture here. Right. But this is like this just like goes down so easy. It's just like <laughs> Disney's just like we have all the technology. We have the master artists. We know exactly how to do this. And it's just going to be so easy to take in. Well, I want to know what you guys speaking of all of this, because when you mentioned the characters movements, Alex, what I think mm. about is watching the characters dance. And mm. I want to know what you think about the choice to have the animated characters dance in this. Because I was kind of struggling to think of other examples of Disney movies that feel where the musical numbers feel choreographed. Not just in their like, I don't know, I, I went to something like, you know, never had a friend like me, right? Uh, from Aladdin. Mm -hmm. Thought about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is like, okay, we're we're flashing around. Genie's doing all kinds of magic stuff. He's dancing. There's like magical sets popping here and there. We're kind of in this abstracted musical space thing where just like stuff's flying around and Aladdin's flying around or whatever. But I I I didn't think of very many other examples um, where characters are where animated characters are dancing and i'm curious to know if it like how you guys felt when you were watching it the first time dancing was my favorite part of like the whole movie <laughs> basically but it because i feel like because I, I remember you mentioning in maybe in the your what what you're watching mm -hmm. of yeah the, the dancing element and kind of those musical elements but it, it felt like to me that it, it didn't it didn't feel musically in the same way like we're dancing to perform for an audience it felt like the characters were just dancing to the music because they wanted to dance most of the time. Like it didn't feel like they were putting on a show, you know, and thinking about, you know, we don't talk about Bruno and there's lots of like little moments of dancing and some of them are like, you know, to camera, but it also just kind of feels like this is a family that dances. This is a part of like their familial, like culture and relationship is like, yes, cousin, I'm going to grab you and we're going to do a cool little move while I'm t whispering to you about Bruno. And, you know, and the wedding day dance. I don't know. I feel like it it felt organic and not performative in a way that uh, I really liked, but did definitely remind me of Never Had a Friend Like Me from Aladdin or mm. Aladdin with Will Smith, which came out more recently. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that, Trisha, because I think the part where it almost bumped for me and I had to kind of adjust myself was in that opening you know, the family song where Mirabelle, she's really doing a lot of like, you know, using her dress as like a prop yeah. in, in mm. her dancing. And that did strike me as different. You know, it, there was a lot of attention called to like, oh, like you're treating this dress as if you are on stage doing something with your costume. Like it's not, it didn't feel like animated movie 
stress. It felt like this is like a thing with weight that I have to actually physically move to do my dance moves um, as she's kind of like trotting around town or crossing the bridge or so that that was interesting. And it, it felt different than like, you know, Belle twirling in a dress or or some other kind of animated yeah, sequence that I've seen before where characters are dancing. But there was something about the way she was using her dress that felt live action and uh, different and 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 after that everything else felt pretty seamless but that was the that was the one moment that felt like i'm watching somebody on stage in like west side story you know move their dress around as they dance on stage as opposed to magical disney character just kind of can glide around and their dress will just move however it needs to mm-hmm. yeah um i think for me i overall really have come around on it it is just different when you have, you know, thinking about we don't talk about Bruno, um, as you mentioned, Michael, where you've got the family singing around the dinner table and like they're putting the plates down and they're like switching stuff around like that. And um, there's a coordination to that, as well as the stuff that's in abstracted space, like uh, Luisa's song, Surface Pressure, mm-hmm. which is really great. Um, I love that song. Um, I love Luisa. Anyway, but a lot of that stuff when when the characters are dancing in a way that feels embodied for the characters themselves like the character is making a choice to dance in this scene i thought at first was pretty distracting um because we're just not used to it we don't have a lot of like i said I don't, there's not a lot of points of reference for it in animated musicals um it's normally like characters are walking around and singing like a lot of the time they're walking and singing and maybe like some visual movement in time with the music is happening around them like i was thinking about the opening number of mulan where mulan is getting dressed up to go see the matchmaker um and there's stuff happening around her that is to the beat of the music but it's not dancing per se so we we're very used to seeing that Um, but we're not as used to seeing, or there's like a performance aspect to certain musicals. So like there's, um, a couple scenes in Coco, right. Where he's like singing because he's on stage and like that, that's a, that's a movie that's, I guess it's a musical, but it has elements where it makes sense. The character has an instrument and he's standing on a stage. So of course he would be doing a dance, um, or whatever, there's, there just are not a lot of points of reference for this. And, and if there's some I'm forgetting about, please tell me. Um, another one of the ones I thought of was there's a, in the movie Anastasia, which is a Don Bluth uh, animated musical, um, the opening number, which is called Rumor in St. Petersburg, there's some coordinated, like animated dancing among like people on the street in St. Petersburg in Russia in that movie. But there's so little, like there's, again, I'm just like, I'm grasping at straws. I'm trying to figure out what visual language this is tapping into. And I'm not saying it doesn't work because I think overall it does hold together. It just really, I just taken it back by it um, in a number of different scenes. And so uh, I, I'm very curious. Yeah. Even thinking about more modern ones like Moana and Frozen, 
the characters are walking and singing or they're sailing and singing or they're or they're in that you know weird abstracted animated space where like Maui is singing and dancing kind of where he's explaining where he all of his powers come from um you, none of you guys know you haven't seen Moana but trust me on this there are <laughs> there are some musical numbers where in that abstracted space where there's kind of dancing happening but like physically embodied in the world of the story their feet planted on solid ground the characters dancing I just don't know if we have much of that and I like it in this movie but it's still it's so singular and unusual I find right Um, I mean it adds to the whole musical thing we talked about in West Side Story which is like do the characters know they're singing right like like are the characters in the story singing or are they talking but we as the audience are seeing a song right and then you add that to you add dance to that and that compounds it even more like did all these characters in this musical learn how to do the same dance and they're doing it no in the world of the musical they are just they are just moving from point a to point b but we as the audience are seeing the like fantasy dance version of this um and i think that maybe what what is different for you because I was I didn't notice it at all as like a strange thing because I was just thinking like that's what all animated musicals do isn't it um and I'm looking now through um Under the Sea from Little Mermaid and Emperor's New Groove and it there absolutely are choreographed moments of there's a bunch of characters on screen and you know all the lobsters are moving this way and all the (laughs) you know octopodes are moving this way or octopuses, if you like. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, but as you were saying, Tricia, it's like one of like 20 things going on during a three minute musical number where it's like usually like, yeah, the characters are walking and they're and they're singing, you know, singing while they're walking and in time. But then like there's a montage where you're getting a haircut and then doop, and there's a guy and then there's a window washer. Right. Like it's all <laughs> this kind of just like boom, 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 random things coming in. Mm-hmm. And then uh, or the uh, Prince Ali from Aladdin, like you right, do get then the, the finale usually, which is like it may only be 20 seconds, but you do get a finale of um, now we're going to see a whole bunch of characters and they are actually doing a choreographed dance. But they're on a parade. But they're in a parade or they're under the sea or whatever. Um, But I think the difference is in Encanto, because the story is so much more focused, you are just seeing a family hanging out together. So it's more noticeable when you see a family hanging out together suddenly start getting up and dancing than it is when you're seeing a parade, like you said, a parade or a bunch right. of sea creatures or, you know, whatever, when they sort of get together and dance, you're like, well, sure. Cause we're already in like crazy crowd, you know, world anyway. Um, so anyway, I didn't really notice it, but, but now I'm fascinated by this and I want to think about it for a long time. This is all that I've been thinking about. And also just like, this is like Trish's thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is this how you guys feel like, about me when I do anything that I do? And get we, don't about, we don't talk about how we feel about you. Okay. The thing is, <laughs> this movie is so grounded and nuanced in all of the ways that we've already identified. Right. right? Where it's like, even though it's a family about, it's, it's a story about a family with magical powers. Um, it's so, like the central conflict and themes are so grounded. And the scope is so small and narrow. That when the characters, even when they're actually not dancing, but they're doing things like coordinated, but still, again, embodied in the real world, not an abstracted musical space, not in montage space, when they're singing, like even in the finale, 
and they give her her doorknob and they're just singing at her. I'm just like, this is a very live action musical thing that I'm watching, but it's animated. And I, I don't know. I don't know about some of that stuff. Well, it's interesting because that part of what you're identifying, even if this isn't what the Renaissance Disney, Disney movies actually did, this is what it feels like to me, I guess. Like 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 moments mm. where characters mid normal scene break into song does feel Renaissance Disney to me in a way that we haven't seen from the kind of Pixar modern Disney era. And so to me, it all just reminded me of a kind of an older time mm -hmm. and i think in, but in particular it it worked for me in this context because the world is so insane even though yes it's very focused on this family i mean like their rooms can take up infinite space and time and be full of just flower towers or a <laughs> giant staircase <laughs> yeah, i mean like, like the world is insane sure. actually if you, if you look at objectively and we do see them you know in the celebration night for the new cousins power they are just dancing like at a party and so there is that kind of just like latin you know we just dance you know kind of a thing so i think both those things combined plus me just shifting into like renaissance disney mode made it all just kind of feel appropriate whereas i think if this was like a a normal pixar film in every other way but then people just broke into choreographed dance and sang at me, I would be like, whoa, this is weird. But I think this movie, once I clicked in after that first musical number of like, okay, this is like Renaissance style Disney. Mm -hmm. Then I, then I, I do just kind of accept, yep, they, they started off this scene talking and now they're singing at each other. And that's just what happens <laughs> in these movies. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't get there, but I'm <laughs> with you. Yeah. It's yeah. So interesting. And I, I want to talk about it for forever, but probably shouldn't. We should probably move yeah. on to lessons. <laughs> yeah, we should. We yeah. should. And uh, yeah, what lessons we're going to take away from Encanto. Brian, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. My lesson is about Luisa's song, Surface Pressure. Um, and or at least that was the song that made me lock into my lesson, which is sort of about all the songs, um, you know, and in our West Side Story episode, I talked about how, especially in older musicals, there are songs that don't actually do anything for the story. They're there to be a song, you know, or to to maybe sort of like live with an emotion for a couple minutes and entertain the audience. But they're not developing character. They're not moving the plot forward. They're not really doing a lot. Um, and uh, I was tracking that in this movie just because it had been on my mind. And I'm pretty sure every single song in this movie is either moving the plot forward, revealing character, providing exposition, or in the case of the two sister songs, which are sort of symmetrical, uh, probably, you know, and, and uh, structurally in the movie, um, they're exploring the theme. And, uh, you know, Luisa's song, and Luisa is not a terribly important character in, in this movie in terms of like, if you actually say what the plot of the movie is, she doesn't really enter into it all that much. Um, but it it's a huge introduction of what the theme is and how uh, Mirabelle, um, you know, relates to the other characters in her family. So she is singing about all the expectations placed on her and how she would ma maybe rather be in uh, Mirabelle's place. And then Meanwhile, Mirabelle had an expectation, you know, her inciting incident into this world was you failed to live up to your expectation through no fault of your own. Uh, and then that's just who you are now. You are the one in this family who 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 failed to live up to that expectation. Um, and then now what's expected of her is to go stand in the corner while 
the magical, you know, uh, people do their thing and, and maybe you just, you know, don't get in, don't cause any trouble, just stay over there. Um, and she would rather be in any other family member's place. Um, so I just think it's a great example that you, you could have had a song that's just a fun song. Like, oh, we have this sister with this power. What are some fun, kooky things she can do in a song? But instead, it, it absolutely does this huge take on the theme and, and really, you know, and because Mirabelle is actually um, is actually there in the song, too. It's not just like we're going to focus on some other character for a little bit. It's like you are seeing the two of these characters interacting um, and uh, and how Mirabelle feels about everything that, that she is talking about. And, you know, I, I just think like I love movies like this for to kind of do like structure 101 or theme 101 or whatever and i and i like to think that if you ask a six-year-old who's seen this movie 20 times by now you know what is this movie about maybe they couldn't answer you you know but i like to think putting songs like this in there will maybe help like fire off some of those synapses and be like oh well there's there's this thing and there's the thing and like that that sister has that song and that sister and they're both about kind of how there's something expected of them and then the main character you know like you could maybe work together a theme you could sew one out of that tapestry of of songs here and it's just um and it, of course that's not just doesn't apply to musicals only it's like any movie whatever your b plot is your c plot is like hopefully that is reflecting the theme um but i just think this is a great example of just this very focused three to four minute we're going to spend some time with this character, but if you're paying attention, you're going to understand what we're talking about here. We're not just having a fun little side adventure, and then we're going to get back to the story. Um, and that's that's why I never felt – I love Coco, but I, there were definitely parts of Coco where I felt like, all right, we got to get to the place to get the other thing to then get up to the, this guy and then meet, go over and meet this thing. you know. And this, I always felt like I was connected even during the songs. And that can be a problem with me with musicals is during the songs, I'm like just waiting for the story to continue. And I felt yeah. every song in this movie was was doing something that it couldn't be cut. Like if it was cut, the movie wouldn't be the same. Yeah, I, I'm on a second that just, you know, I had similar feelings about Coco where I, I really appreciated the movie and it was beautiful and lovely and fun. But yeah, I there were those parts where I was like, this isn't doing all the things at once. You know, the way that I like want for my best Disney Pixar movies. And this is an example of, yeah, you can study this movie just like you can study the best Pixar films of just one-on-one. Here is an amazingly tight screenplay. Everything's on the surface. You can see it so clearly and and everything's doing five things at once throughout the whole thing. Uh, and it's just so satisfying. Mm -hmm. I love how the middle act of this movie is just Maribel talks to a family member who tells her to talk to another family. That's <laughs> <Right. laughs> like the entire boom, 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 boom. Yep. Uh, until, and that's even what the crisis is too. It's yep. like Mirabelle talks right. to the family member. She should have started by talking <laughs> to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even Bruno coming back into the picture happens in the middle of a song. Yep. So, so again, you couldn't just cut the song out of the movie because it is, it is the the climax of the movie, basically. It, yeah, Louisa's song is interesting because I think that's 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 when I locked into the movie for sure. I was still kind of at a distance and like wasn't necessarily like even Mirabelle's like this is what I want song was a little bit like okay you're gonna okay yeah. uh, for me, but like yeah, I feel like that. That song, Louisa's songs, when it really started firing on all cylinders for me, and partially because it it started leaning into the 
Aladdin-ness of it, of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to sing, yeah. we're all over the place. Like, this is abstract and weird and like all kinds of stuff. We're like... Titanic. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. so it's like, there's so many like, yeah, channels of information coming at you that's going with the music in a really like fun, exciting way that, yeah, that also made me coming out of this be like, can we do live action musicals anymore? Like, I feel like animated movies are just very well suited to it. I don't want to open a whole can of worms, but like West Side Story didn't really work for me as far as musical stuff goes. And I think partially because there were just like less like, you know, frequencies of fun musicalness stuff happening. And this movie just does it so well. Anyway, I'll save some of this for the rest for my lesson. But um, (laughs) Brian's lesson. Good. Thumbs up. Alex, what's your lesson? Uh, so my lesson is is about prophecy stories, thinking about, yeah, how do you do a prophecy story? Because if you know the future and know the ending, then that takes all the suspense out. And this movie pulled the minority report thing where you 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 show what's to come, but out of order, out of mm. context, you, you see pieces of the future, but you don't know like what's going to happen. It's unclear which way it's going to go. And that's a it's. If you're going to have a prophecy like that, then it, then it creates these markers for the audience to be watching out for, which is fun. So you see, oh, there's the butterfly. There's the moment where she and her sister hug. What does it mean? And But you don't see the full picture until it all clicks into place in the finale. Um, so I think it's just a very deftly... Uh, they, they, they handled the idea of a prophecy very well. And I think it's a good lesson for if you're going to... If you're going to base a story around a prophecy... Uh, this shows some tips and tricks of how to deal with that. Um, and and it, I always I always just like having images and symbols, like in Minority Report, that you are anticipating seeing. So when they come, you get that little aha moment. And oh, but oh, but it was in this context actually. It's not what I thought it was. Um, it's just, that's just very satisfying. I love the look, the like prismy look of the prophecy, where you oh, hold yeah. it one way and the house is that way, and that. It's a very cool yeah, visual representation of the thing you're talking about. It did make me want one of those. Like, oh, totally. Well, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it would I be. Feel of, like at Disneyland, but I want that. You can probably already buy that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, mine has to do with um, songs at the major plot beats and the crisis song in this. Um, so. I feel like in a lot of movie musicals, uh, animated musicals, the crisis song is a song for the hero um, where, and it's often a reprise, like a sad reprise of their, this is what I want song. Um, And I think that it's really lovely to see this crisis song go a different direction. And it's, it's really a song about the abuela. Right. Um, And it's not even sung by any of the characters. It's just played in Spanish over a montage that gives us a complete, more complete information and uh, shows us the complete story about um, what happened and why, you know, sort of the motivations behind why Abuela is acting the way that she is. And that's sort of the whole conflict of the, of the plot. And I, I think that there's a reason why that song is not as catchy to the under 10 set. Um, not just because it's in Spanish, but because it's just sort of this like soft, sad sort of folk ballad. Um, 
for a crisis song where it's much easier to have. Well, so most of the songs that are that arise as being like the singles out of Disney Renaissance animated musicals are this is what I want songs Um, Mm. that those are the big sweeping like this is my heart's desire ballads Um, like Let It Go is essentially this is what I want song. Um, And then want to be king. Yep. (laughs) Just can't wait to be king. Reflections from Lon is another one. Right. Part of your world is from Mm -hmm. Little Mermaid. That one's the best one in that in that movie. And it's interesting that Waiting on a Miracle, which is the this is what I want song from this movie, is not the the hit. Right. It's interesting that the midpoint song is the hit from this movie, which I think is fascinating. Um, But the one nominated for an Oscar was the crisis song. And I just think it's I think it's a really bold choice. And I think it's a really lovely way to frame the central conflict, which is Mirabelle, you don't understand. And maybe if you did understand, you would be able to connect and heal the thing you need to heal, which is your relationship with your grandmother. Um, you know, you've been chasing all around the source of the problem with the magic, like through every single one of your other family members, but you haven't stopped to ask the one person who would be able to tell you, you know? And so I, I think that it's for a movie with the scale that this movie has, which is a very internalized family conflict scale and the kind of, yeah, small, essentially small crisis that we've identified, it would be the wrong decision to give a big sweeping ballad to either her grandmother or to her. And so I like the choice to make this sort of a soft, quiet song about like grief and, you know, the trauma, as you mentioned, Alex, that the fa- that um, she lived through and it becomes a realization point for them both. And then Mirabel has that wonderful... Like you kept us together. The reason we are family is because of you, um, where she takes back what she said basically before. And so I just think that if you are writing a movie structurally and trying to check boxes about plot beats, um, you don't, they don't not all crises look alike and they don't all have to mm. sound alike either in the same way that not all, you know, breaks into two or midpoints are all the same. Like I think, there's a cookie cutter way to do this. That's way worse. And the fact that it seemed there, there was a lot of care taken to make this um, a thoughtful uh, crisis point is just speaks volumes. And I think that that's why I think the finale song becomes even more sort of like triumphant and fun um, because there was this like really quiet crisis song. So hmm. I mentioned at one point uh, a Malcolm Gladwell podcast episode, series of episodes where he rewrote the ending to The Little Mermaid with Britt Marling to be more like modern and PC and have like, what are the the morals that we actually think are good and that we should be like teaching children? And, you know, it was done hastily and through a Malcolm Gladwell lens. So it like uh, could have, I would not be surprised if it came off as super annoying to a lot of people. Uh, as like, here's the maybe clunky and two on the nose way to do it. I feel like Encanto is like the perfect way to do it that uh, accomplishes all the things that, you know, he brought up in the, in that episode that he and Britt Marling were trying to solve. This does it in like a super effortless way. And I think as you're pointing out, Trisha, it's this kind of subversive, different approach to the crisis where the crisis is actually like 
empathy for the antagonist moment. Like that's not a thing that is in, you know, Blake Snyder's, you know, beat sheet kind of thing. And I think this is, yeah, a really cool model to look to moving forward of how to tell stories that aren't just, as we mentioned already, bad guy does a thing. Now we have to get everybody together to go punch the bad guy until we win. Uh, and I think it's powerful for all the reasons that you just outlined. So it's one of the things I love about this movie. Tell us about your lesson, Michael. Yeah, uh, my lesson, I think, is just the power of aesthetics. I think I'm always mm -hmm. very tuned into structure and story and have kind of trained myself over the last many years to like, but if you stripped away all the colors and all the like acting and everything, <laughs> like what does the story do? And is that good enough? And I feel like this movie, as we talked about, has all those great structural story moments, but it's just like it overwhelmed me with how much the aesthetics of it elevated that story and made it the color uh, uh -huh. so much color right. like yes colorful bold the animation as we talked about um and and i think the you know i watched some of the behind the scenes and like the sort of design of the we don't talk about bruno song and how they brought in choreographers and used to reference you know uh videos of actual people moving and so that there is this as you were talking about, Alex, I guess, like this pinnacle seems to have been reached where it's it's realistic. It feels human. You like the characters have the weight that they should, but it's also still magical and special and larger than life. And it's such. Uh, yeah, this is just such a great showcase, like the story is such a great showcase for that and have it being a musical and that it, I think, helps to dramatize and make emotional um an arc that might be difficult if you were trying to shove it into the you know but now we have to go punch people mold um so yeah mm -hmm. aesthetics are good in movies it's not a lesson that most people need to be reminded of but i do sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah. super quickly aesthetics but also like comedy mm -hmm. i feel that mm. the jokes in a lot of more modern animated movies feel more like referency or they get dated really Tom quickly or top. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think because this isn't like a time out of place world, the jokes have to be like funny in and of themselves. And I think they really are. And a lot of that's just Mirabelle and like sort of her physical comedy that she has the scene where she's in Bruno's room and like climbing the staircase and talking to the toucan is so funny to me the look like, that toucan gives her also at that one point is like how did they get that Alan look Tudyk. on a bird <laughs> um it's a it's like for some reason that is so funny to me because she's i don't know the the way the character moves and like is singing to herself is really hilarious but yeah i just think that the comedy is also what makes it like sparkle right like your the aesthetics make it sparkly and stand out and and also the the comedy here is really well done and and I think does make it stand out. The scene, she goes, at least I have a friend. Nope, he flew a mate away immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me laugh every time. Yeah. Speaking of sparkles, I think I had a, I wrote a note down actually when 
couple of like the early sparkly door scenes there's even like a musical cue that comes up that just felt like classic disney like Mm. this is magical sparkly door music and i like i'm really like soothed right now (laughs) because i'm being transported to just like this is just like core disney feels when magical things are happening this kind of music is happening and it just looks super pretty so i just appreciate that too like you know bring me back there disney just give me a magical door with some sparkles one of my friends hired an artist to paint her daughter's door in like an Encanto style with like nice. all the stuff that she loves around Adorable. her with like her name on it. That's epic. I need a sparkly door. That's great. <laughs> Don't we all? Awesome. Okay. Well, what else have you guys been watching? Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, because it's finally coming out uh, for a wide release this month, I can talk about uh, Petite Mama. The mm. new Celine Siama movie mm. of oh my God. Portrait of a Lady on Fire fame. Um, and uh, yeah, I mentioned when I marathoned her filmography sometime last year that her first two movies were like these really short, lo-fi dramas with a small cast. And this is very much leaning back into that. It's 72 minutes. It has maybe five characters in it. Um, very simply shot. You know, um, it, it is it is not the movie you would expect following Portrait of Lady on Fire. But I love that. I love that she's just like, no, I'm, I'm keeping it keeping it here. I'm keeping it with my roots. Um, and the story is really interesting. Nellie, who is maybe 11, uh, she and her family are at her mother's childhood home after her maternal grandmother passes away. So her mother's mother. Um, and the mother is upset and just leaves during the night without saying goodbye. And they're not really sure, like, you know, does she just need some time? Where is she? Whatever. The next day, Nellie goes into the woods and she meets a little girl playing in the woods, played by that actress's twin sister, like her, (laughs) the girl plays Nellie, that actress, her twin sister. It becomes very clear that it is her mother as a child that she is now interacting with in the woods. Hmm. Um, But it's not a time travel movie. It's not like I told her something and then she remembered it in the future, you know, or like I made a, a... thing in the house and then it was there when I went back to my first it's it, like it's not interested at all in being that kind of movie it's just uh, like an impressionistic fable about about this girl processing everything that's going on with her mother and her grandmother who of course is alive in the past um, and the movie's not interested at all in saying like is this real is this all in her head it doesn't matter because it's just not trying to uh, it's not trying to be that kind of a movie, like a time travel thing or or a, it's all in her head thing. It's just like a, like I said, impressionistic kind of painting, you know, tone poem or something. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's really beautiful. Like I said, it's very short um, and it just it just gets in there and gets it done. And I can't wait to see what her next like big movie is, you know, to, to sort of follow up uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire. But I'm just so happy that she's doing just like really simple focus things like this um and hopefully uh those of you in the states can actually see it sometime soon so check it out when you can awesome that's cool yeah again another great bold what if just like go with it audience we don't need to explain it if it's part of our what if right i was a fan of that awesome uh alex what have you been watching recently 
so yeah, so I saw everything everywhere all at once in a nice, loud, big theater, which is how I'd recommend you see it. Uh, it's a, the new film by Daniels, and it's got a lot of buzz online, so you've probably heard about it, um, starring Michelle Yao. And it's just it's just a wonderful, insane, you know, it's in in the spirit of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, just a really overambitious movie that is just so incredibly it's it's a movie that as a director i just my brain hurts thinking about how do you plan this movie how do you shoot this movie Mm -hmm. how do you conceive of this movie because there's just so much going on and like i I need to see it again just to take it all in because it's such a wild like almost obscene ride It, it it feels like the daniels kind of took all of our millennial influences and just poured them into one movie and just packed it all together uh so yeah it's just it's hard for me to even talk about it or like say like what it is it's just i think it's worth seeing in a nice big theater and and just go for this wild millennial brain ride with the daniels <laughs> uh and it it's strangely or maybe not so strangely it's it's following this trend that trisha picked up on from several other animated films of having kind of like teenage daughter uh fa- uh family you know generational trauma being passed down is dealing with all those themes as well in another context and done very well and and the movie really brings home those themes in the final act in a really satisfying way so it's it's not just i mean it's it's pretty wacky and goes to a lot of far out places that feel very disparate at times but it all comes back together and it really sticks the landing uh which makes it feel special and not just wacky weird bizarre kooky film right Uh, it is those things but it also is about something and it really sticks the landing uh, about that thing uh so yeah definitely worth seeing in theaters if you can yeah it sort of has like a lord and miller energy to it but like Mm -hmm. live action and rated r (laughs) and yes and or the other thing i thought when i was watching it was like what if spike jones made the matrix like Mm -hmm. it's just sort of it has like this like dreary office building vibe to it but also it's basically the plot of the matrix but also with Lord Miller. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I've got to take it to it this week and I'm very, very excited. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh cool. Uh Trisha, what have you been watching? So I am watching a movie that's also about a large family with a lot of characters. Uh not a movie, actually. A t- a TV show that you might have heard of called Bridgerton. Um, season two is out. <laughs> and uh, I think I mentioned that I was watching the first season of Bridgerton when it was out. And the second season is now out. And I am enjoying it very much. It's interesting because... So the first... For those that don't know, uh, Bridgerton is, you know, a drama. Sort of a costume drama. Uh, romantic drama that's sort of like in... Uh, it's like Pride and Prejudice were like really sexy and modern and, and uh, sort of existed in like a fantasy world, basically. Um, anyway, the first season is about this one romance uh, between these two central characters, and they were not able to get the actor from that romance to come back for the mm. second season. Um, Roger Jean Page did not return. He is gorgeous to look at and was the main reason that a lot of people watched the first season. Uh, and he is not returned. <laughs> However, I thought there's no possible way that the second season losing its male lead could be like the same show or good at all. 
And it's working for me, though. Like, they've introduced new characters. They've kind of shifted the focus to a character that was already in the first season and was a big part of the first season, um, has now become the central character or the new sort of male lead. And it's still really enjoyable. And, you know, it's I'm not going to call it high art or anything like that. Uh, And uh, it's even slightly pornographic in places, but it's like... It's something fun to watch um, that has actually pulled off something pretty difficult to do, which is like you basically lost one of the main reasons people were watching your show. He's not in it anymore. What do you do? And it's like it's good. What they've what they've done with it is impressive. So I'm you know still hooked into it, and I'm not done with the season yet. So no spoilers, please. But uh, really enjoying Bridgerton season two. Hey, it's Shonda Rhimes. I know, man. Grey's Anatomy is is still going. How many characters have they lost in Grey's Anatomy? There's like maybe one, two original cast members still in when that show. When you've got a great engine so, and you know, like, yeah. I feel like this very precise flavor of tea cake is what I'm going to call it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're serving? Like, just slice that Shonda up and Land. serve it. Yeah. Like, and it'll work. <laughs> yeah. Nice. That is, yeah, I noticed that dude face wasn't in the posters for the second season i was like what happened so it's interesting to hear that they couldn't get he was just too pretty and he had to go on and do other pretty stuff it sounds like i assume so don't worry there are other pretty people in the show nice (laughs) excellent uh cool uh i recently started watching schitt's creek Ah, uh it has been recommended to me thank you for for many years uh and i have dove in dived in dovin D- uh, dividend dividend i have dividend <laughs> yeah. into the uh i think i'm like halfway through season three maybe getting to the end of season three it's a really weird show and so yeah for people that don't know the premise super rich family loses all their money has to move into a town called Schitt's creek they're super poor live in a motel and then it's that's it's just that them dealing with that and the like the local townsfolk and stuff and it's I can't tell like like it's a comedy, but what kind of comedy is it? But it's also like a little bit of a drama, but not so much that it's like, you know, like The Office where it like hardcore goes into like and now you're going to cry mode. Uh, But I am like really emotionally connected to these characters. It's really fascinating and been a a wild ride so far and unlike literally anything I've I've seen before. So, uh, yeah, Chitch Creek, I'm enjoying it. it's really hard not to just yell David at everyone <laughs> constantly. Uh, I feel like I also secretly am David and look up to him. Anyway, uh, it's fun. I'm enjoying it. Nice. And this has been our conversation about Encanto. Uh, yeah, we want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>